Friends, if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and that is on, if, you're, if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, you can find that on page 889 uh, in the Pew Bible. John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at, uh, I know it says uh, to verse 45, we're actually going to only be going to verse 42. Um, we're not going to deal with those final three verses in our time together. <clears throat> John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Um, I've been watching a documentary. Ashley and I love documentaries, and I've been watching the documentary uh, by Ken Burns on the West. Uh, I, I was fascinated when we went out there to the Grand Canyon a few several years ago, and then when we went out to the Grand Tetons a couple years ago, and uh, would love to live there, but I'm going to stay here, so no worries. Um, Maybe you want me to move there. I don't know. But uh, either way, I love the West, and I love the story of the West. And a lot of times, uh, maybe it's the the cowboy relationships, you know, just being able to be out there and out in God's country and and seeing things and riding horses and having wide open spaces and seeing mountains. It's really beautiful and fascinating. But a lot of the story of how the West was settled kind of gets swept under the rug of how we actually got California, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, you kind of don't know how that happened. Well, it happened through the American-Mexican War, the Mexican-American War that happened in uh, 1846 to 1848. Really ugly time, to be honest with you, because there was a lot of animosity between the Americans that were moving from the East and settling the West, and they would, you know, dislocate and push out the Native Americans who were living in those regions that they had already dislocated in the first place, and then they dislocate them again. And then there's this border uh, skirmish that's happening uh, between Mexico because Mexico contained all of those states. And as these American settlers are coming in, there's these little fights that are going on, and Mexicans hated Americans, as you can imagine. And Americans hated Mexicans. And it was a very ugly time. They despised one another. There would be open killings and nobody cared. They would just kill them. And so that's how we got our states. (laughs) That's how we got those states. Not a very savory thing in the time of American history, to be honest, among other things. Um, But there's one Mexican, as he was reflecting on this, after they lost all of that territory, after they lost essentially half of their country to their northern neighbor, He says this, he says, our race, our unfortunate people will now have to wander in search of hospitality in a strange land. The North Americans hate us. Their spokesmen deprecate us and they consider us unworthy to form with them one nation and one society. They don't want to have anything to do with one another. And this is a lot like the scenario in which we find ourselves in John chapter 4, that Samaritans and Jews did not like each other. They despised one another. Because what happened in the history of Israel, um, and we looked at this as we walked through the Minor Prophets, but the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, uh, were captured by Assyria in 722 B.C. And there were Israelites who uh, married and uh, had babies, and they were called Samaritans. And so everybody, if you, took, if you take the, the different territories, the Samaritans lived in those northern tribes, and they were despised because they had compromised their faith. They had mixed their blood with uh, infidels. 
And then the, the two tribes in the south of Judah and Benjamin are now known as the Jews. And so Jews, representing the Judah and Benjamin, that is centered in Jerusalem down here, did not have relationships with the Samaritans who were their northern, northern neighbors. They despised each other. They hated one another. They didn't talk to one another. And uh, in a couple conversations that we see here in John chapter 4, Jesus would teach us several things as to what we are to be about as His people. Specifically, if you're taking notes, the main idea as I see it uh, is that God is seeking true spiritual worshipers. It comes from the text itself. We'll see that here in a moment. But the, the main point of this passage is that God is seeking. He's looking for. He's, his eyes are roaming all over the earth looking for those who will be true and spiritual worshipers of Him. And there are many people in our city of Greenville in this upstate area that go to church because it's the right thing to do. Maybe you find yourself here because it's the right thing to do. And you didn't really get up this morning and saying, hey, I'm, I want to go worship God with other people this morning. Well, I'm glad that you're here either way. But God, as we see in this passage, uh, wants worshipers who are compelled by a deep and abiding love and passionate zeal for God and for His name, for His renown, for His fame throughout the world. And this morning, we're going to look at it in three points to get that, that support this main idea of God seeking true spiritual worshipers through a thirsty woman, that's the first point, and the hungry disciples, that's the second point, and we'll learn what it means to be spiritual sowers, that's the third point. So we're going to be looking at a thirsty woman, the hungry disciples, and spiritual sowers. Those are the, the, those are the three points of our, of our uh, message today. But before we get there, I want to share with you the setup to these characters that we're going to be seeing in our passage today. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. This is the setup for this, these conversations that Jesus has. John chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself didn't baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And so we learn several things in the setup to this first conversation with the thirsty woman in that Jesus' popularity was growing. And right at the height of when his popularity is growing, what does Jesus do? He leaves. Right? When Jesus heard that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptized, that he was getting really popular, he left. And I think this is instructive and informative for us as church folk, how we consider when God is quote-unquote on the move. Right? A lot of times we can gauge the effectiveness of a ministry, the effectiveness of a church, the effectiveness of an event, whether how many people are there. And what we see here is that Jesus flips that on his head and he says, that's not the criteria of which I am looking for as to whether God is on the move or not. We often measure whether God is on the move or not, depending on 
you know, was it really exciting music or were there a lot of people there, right? But Jesus realizes that God is with one person just as much as he is with the 99. And so Jesus leaves the 99 to pursue the one person because God himself is also there. He's also there in the midst of the small group that's huddling by itself, praying together in silence. God is just as much there as He is at a huge event. The question is is whether we will see it and whether we'll be engaged with what He is doing or not. That's the main question of whether we'll participate with His work of ministry. But then secondly, Jesus goes right to the heart of Samaria to a well that is talked about in Genesis chapter 29. I'd encourage you to go there later about Jacob's well. And this is where Jacob watered the sheep of Rachel. And that's really instructive. In fact, I would encourage you to to put those pieces together of what Jesus is doing in his interaction with the woman at the well and what Jacob and Rachel, their interaction. There's a lot there, but uh, and I I wrote down several things uh, to share, but there's not much time to be able to show the the difference, the comparison and contrast between what Jacob is doing and what Jesus is doing, but it's very instructive. But what Jesus is doing by going to this well is he's finding common ground with the very people that were despised to one another. Right? A lot of times we can look at folks who are quote-unquote far from God and we say, well, I don't even know where to start. Well, you find common ground in the fact that they are also made in the image of God. You have that much in common, and so you start there. You start there. You see, the Samaritans were so despised by the Jews that if a Jew... Um, so I was trying to show you geographically here, right? Like, so, so you have Jerusalem down here, right? And you have the Jordan River that, that forms the boundary here. And then right between Galilee, which is up here, and uh, Judea, which is down here, is Samaria. So in order to go from Judea to Galilee, the quickest route is to go this way. <laughs> but the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they went around. They would actually cross the Jordan River and go up into Gentile territory and come back around to be able to go to Galilee. They despised them that much. It's kind of like avoiding Woodruff Road around Christmas time. You just don't do that. You just don't go there. And so they didn't want to go there either. But Jesus, both out of necessity and out of, hey, this is this is the most direct route. I have to go this way. This is the way we should go. So let's follow this path, even though this is not the path that his disciples would have taken. In fact, they were probably frustrated with him. Probably a little scared. Probably a little tentative to go through a territory that they knew that they were despised just as much as they despised the Samaritans. And so, so Jesus says, we're going to go this way because there is, for one, somebody I need to talk to. And two, it just makes sense. It just makes sense that in the proximity of where you live, so this is a point of uh, a sub point of application here, where you live, God has put you there to be in conjunction with the people that you live with. So, so God has put you there in that geography to be near those people, whether you like it or not, so that you will be influenced by them and influence them to care for one another, to have a mutual encouragement with them. You may not like it. You may not like your next door neighbor, but God has put you next to that person, yes, even that one, so that you can be involved in their life and so that they could be involved in your life. 
And maybe you're thinking, but yeah, I, you've not met my neighbor yet. Well, maybe you should meet your neighbor and spend time with them. Learn to love them. Learn to see them as made in God's image because everybody's hurt about something. Everybody has struggles with something. And even that crotchety old neighbor has a story, has a history. And God has put you next to them to care for them. Take them a casserole. Take them cookies. Do something. Wave at them. <laughs> Say, hey, I'm, I'm here. Nice to meet you. Because God has put you in their proximity. And a lot of times in America, it's really typical for us to drive into our garage, pull out of our garage, go to work, come, and never talk to the person who is right next to us. And God has put you there. And God has put you next to that person in that cubicle. Yes, even that person that you would rather not spend time with, that you would not rather hear about their weekend. You just want to get your work done. But yes, God has placed you with that coworker too, even though you would not have chosen that way. Thirdly, though, that we see in this setup here is that this is the sixth hour. And, and you see a footnote here. This is probably around 12 o'clock. My, my note here says it's about noon. Because you start with the sunrise according to Jewish hours. And so the sixth hours from six in, six in the morning when the sun typically comes up, six in the morning to the sixth hour would be 12 o'clock. The middle of the hot day when you don't go to a well. You don't really do anything at around 12 o'clock. In, in Argentina, we would take siestas, which were incredible. And I uh, encourage you to do that sometime. It's really awesome. Um, but this is when you would relax put a pause button for the day. And that's why it's really strange that this woman shows up at this well to draw water for her household. And that's where we come to our first point after this setup. First point is this, is that we see a thirsty woman. Let's look at verse 7. We're going to read 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is too deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. She sa Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one uh, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us, all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this woman is on the fringe of society. She comes at noon when nobody else, when she's not going to interact with anybody else. She didn't want to be known and she really didn't want to know other people because knowing other people And them knowing you is an invitation to get hurt. And a lot of times we can think, well, okay, this person's on the fringe of society. Let's let's evaluate how she is. Let me just pause for a moment and say, perhaps you are this woman in the story. Perhaps you don't want other people to really know you. Perhaps... In theory, we want people to know about us, but we don't want them to know everything about us. Church folk can sometimes be the worst about that, can't we? I'll let you know this much, but I don't want you to let, I don't want to let you know about my marriage. I don't want to let you know about my struggles with that sin because you may judge me. You may think that I'm not all that. And so we oftentimes keep people at an arm's length because we are afraid of them really knowing us, truly knowing us. And we see here in the woman at the well that Jesus draws her out because He loves her. And God has given this church to you, member of Redeemer and those who are regular attenders, that God has given this church to you to draw you out as well. To give you the space and the opportunity to be transparent with people that you've never been able to be transparent with. And you've been trying to struggle with that particular sin of anxiety or depression or that besetting sin that keeps getting you every week. God has given you other people in this room so that you can actually be known and that you don't have to go to the well at noon anymore. You don't have to show up late and leave early. You can stick around. And you can get to let people know you for who you are and know that you are loved, period. But do you notice how fixated this woman is also on simply getting the water? I think it's fascinating. I think it's instructive for us sometimes that we can get so bent on getting a job done or getting something done that we forget everything that God's doing around us. He's like, I just need to get water, man. Hey, can you just be quiet? I'm, I'm just doing my thing. Don't ask me how my week was. Definitely don't ask me about my husband's. And a lot of times we can say, hey, I'm just here to sing and to worship and please don't get in my business. We can get so fixated though also, not just in the worship gathering of just getting it done and getting out, right? But we can get so fixated on paying our bills on going about our daily grind, chauffeuring the kids, 
That we fail to see the beauty of each miraculous moment. That if I can just get this test done, then I'll be happy. Well, there's going to be another test. There's going to be another time where you've got to study really, really hard for that midterm that's coming up. I think those are coming up, aren't they? Midterms? Great. There's going to be finals too. And then there's going to be midterms and finals next semester. There's going to be a midterm and final this summer. There's going to be constantly an opportunity for you to say, God, what do you want to teach me in this anxiety and this depression, this, these feelings of fear that I have that I'm going to fail? What do you want to do in my life? That's what God's wanting to do more than you acing a test. Although that's, that's good. I'm not telling you not to ace tests, but I'm also telling you to not lose track. If you're wired like me, I like to get things done. I like to check it off my list. Maybe you do too. And you can get so bent on checking things off your list. I got to go to the grocery store. I got to clean my house. I got to do that. You can forget to commune with God in the grocery store, in the vacuuming, in the changing of a diaper. I'm really thankful over the last several weeks of the work that Chad's been doing in the adult discipleship class of thinking through vocation. And I want to encourage you all to come to that. It has been really good. I wasn't able to be there today because of the, the baptism class. Um, we got, what, four or five weeks left? Sorry, it was a pop quiz. I just gave you a pop quiz. Several weeks left. Through the end of May. So we are still doing it. And, and a lot of times we can look at our work as though, hey, this is what I have to do, but I, I really am not doing God's work. But the beauty of this class is that God is encouraging us that God uses that vocation for you to actually worship Him, for you to commune with Him in your job. Instead of getting bogged down with just getting a paycheck, we have been learning to commune with God through our work which I'm really, really thankful for. And so let me ask you this. Do you see your job as just a necessary evil? You wouldn't have chosen it in the grand list of things, but God chose it for you. God chose that path for you. Do you see the greater plan that God has for your life in the midst of that path through Samaria? Maybe the Lord would have you camp in Samaria. Maybe the Lord would have you build in Samaria like He did for Israel in Babylon to stay there, to plant gardens, to be there, to honor God. That, that those particular coworkers that you think you're just passing through are the ones that God has placed in your life for you to love and to care for, not to just get through for a couple years to learn about their issues and their fears and their joys and to share yours with them as well, to be a divine presence for them. Your job is beautiful. And it's really hard to see sometimes. I know it. I've been there, done that. There are times when my job uh, at the university is very laborious and boring. But spreadsheets are essential. Teaching classes is essential. Loving the administrative staff that supports my work is essential to being Christ to those people. And whatever you're doing, God is using you in the lives of others if you'll open your eyes and see it as that. But then notice here also with this thirsty woman, do you notice how fixated she is on her cultural heritage? 
She's put her confidence in this well, this particular well, this particular place. So the Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. That's, that's the mountain that they said, hey, we're going to go to Mount Gerizim. That's where we're going to worship God. And she was so fixated on that that she had leaned on that well and on that way of being all of her life. And she is shocked that Jesus, a Jew, would even talk to her. It's a bit scandalous, actually, and you can see that. Where, the, where, where We'll see this in the next point where the disciples are scandalized, like, what is he doing? <laughs> but do you notice that she has trouble seeing God at work because she can't get around the church culture that has bogged her down and, and chained her up for so long? Do you notice how fixated she is on her religious heritage in addition to her cultural heritage? How often do we get bogged down with religious things in our own life? On what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Don't cuss. Read your Bible. Pray. These are all good things. I'm not telling you to go around and you know, not read your Bible, not pray, not you know, go ahead and cuss, whatever. I'm saying the point is this, is that you think and I think too many times that Christianity is just about don't do this, do this. The Lord wants a vibrant relationship to be a bit scandalous so that He can speak to you. Instead of saying, well, you know, i got to read this. i got to pray more. How many times have have you heard and I heard Christians say, I know I need to do this more. I know I need to do it. Well, or maybe you just need to pursue God and say, Lord, use these tools so that I can hear you speak instead of checking it off your list. Checking off a list isn't bad but not putting your confidence in those tools that are meant to lead you to a deeper fellowship with God. When you've lost that, then just forget it. And that's what happened with this thirsty woman is that she was so bogged down with the right way of doing things that she couldn't hear Jesus. We have to guard as church people prioritizing practice over principle. Let me say that again. You're going to want to write it down. This is something I learned several years ago. I was involved in a denomination that prioritized practice over principle. It is a good thing. So, so let, me, let me play it out this way. At this particular denomination that we are involved in, everybody homeschooled. And if you sent your kid to another school, even if it's a Christian school, you were a little suspect. That's a good, it's a good practice to homeschool your kids. In fact, we did it for several years. But it is not the principle. The principle is that you are a, the primary discipler of your family. That is the principle that must not be equated with the practice to say, well, if you really love your kids, then you're going to do it this way. If you really want to be holy, you will never listen to secular music. You, you probably can fill in the blanks of, of, of other things that we can take and make practices the principle to where we use that as a rod to beat other people with and say, you must not love Jesus because you haven't gone on a mission trip. It's a good thing to go on a mission trip, but it's not the thing. It is a tool. It can't be the only thing. Providing for your family is really important. Providing opportunities and sporting events is really important, but it cannot replace the need for spiritual leadership in the home. Please, please don't prioritize opportunities that you can give to your kids 
for the essential spiritual leadership that has to take place in your home. So don't prioritize practices over principles because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Why why don't you wash your hands in this particular way? Well, it's good to wash your hands before you eat. In fact, I encourage everyone to do that. But you need to wash it this certain way. And that's how that's how legalism creeps into the church and then makes makes the church bent on judging everybody else. So that when they walk in the doors like, I don't I can feel the judginess. <laughs> May it never be true of this church that we judge anybody that walks in these doors for any reason, but that we with open arms say, welcome. You're welcome. Instead of asking whether they live in this certain neighborhood or that certain neighborhood and they do these certain practices over the principles. But notice one last thing, that God is seeking true worshipers in this conversation with the woman. It's the same beautiful image that we see in 2 Chronicles 16.9. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, we hear this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support, to fight for those whose heart is blameless toward Him. That's the kind of people that... God is not looking for the self-righteous. God is not looking for those who have it put together, but He's looking for those whose heart is blameless towards Him, who, who look to Him to fill them up. That's the person that God, that, that, that Peter says, he, God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. Those who would say, I am such a mess. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. He's looking for people who are honest, who want Him to fill them up spiritually, that their souls are longing and for so long as church folk, again, we can be the worst to where we think that if I can just do all these things and I... I must be okay. My relationship with God's okay because I'm, I'm doing all the things. And the Lord says, please don't put your confidence in doing all the things. Put your confidence in the one who will fight for you, who, who wants to be a strong support for you. But then secondly, our second point is this, is the second, in the second conversation that Jesus has is hungry disciples. So we looked at the thirsty woman, hungry disciples, verses 27 through 38, if you'd read with me. So Jesus just revealed to the woman, he says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, I'm the Messiah. Just then, verse 27, his disciples came back from town. Remember, they had gone into town to look for some some food. Um, They marveled (laughs) that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. That's to be linked with the the previous passage of verse 25. He will tell us all things. Well, look at this. She makes the connection. He has told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Don't you say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together for 
For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So the disciples, quite clearly, we see that they're, they're marveling that he's talking to a woman by himself. They're dismayed that he is talking to a Samaritan. On top of all that, what a mess. And Jesus simply opens his disciples' eyes. In fact, he tells them to lift up their eyes to see past their cultural baggage. Whereas the woman was in need of truth, that true worshipers needed to be worshiping uh, through God's prescribed way in the previous passage, the disciples were in need of the Spirit. Right? He's seeking true worshipers in spirit, right? So they needed to see with spiritual eyes that, was, that which was right in front of them. Like other disciples who followed Jesus because of the bread He multiplied, the disciples were largely concerned about their stomachs. Pause button. As Christians, we oftentimes get too bogged down with our stomachs, with my needs, with whether God is hearing my prayers, whether I am doing it the right way or not, whether I'm parenting the right way, whether I'm a good husband or a good wife. We are so concerned about these concerns, which are good concerns. Again, this is not a black or white issue. This is a measure of degree. But Jesus says, get your eyes off yourself. Look up. Look out. There's a field that is waiting to be harvested. Stop worrying about the, the bread. You're, you're concerned about this like the Israelites were about manna. I will provide for your need tomorrow. It may not be in the prescribed way that you want, but I will provide for you. Now look up and go out and reap and sow that for which I've called you. You have a bigger purpose, Christian, than paying your bills. You have a bigger purpose than... <laughs> Many things that we prioritize over what God has called us to do, namely to enjoy Him and to look to Him and to see that He loves you and He cares for you and He is with you in every moment and every argument, that God is with you in the midst of that. So, because eventually Jesus ate, right? It's not like anytime the disciples came and said, Hey, uh, Rabbi, go ahead and eat. He's like, No, 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 I can't eat. No, He's, he's human. He's 100% divine and He's 100% human. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got thirsty, as we see on the cross. So He did eventually eat. Let's not lose that fact. But it's not about the spiritual having a priority or being more valuable than the physical. Hear me out on this. Because this is what we oftentimes do. We have a, a modified Gnosticism. We believe that if I just believe these things, then I'm going to be closer to God. Well, what we see here is that God uses the physical and the spiritual to work together. Sometimes, if you're feeling downcast, it means you just need to take a nap. It means you need to grab a Snickers. Right? Get an apple. That's even better. But, but, but your physical and your spiritual bodies ought to be connected, and that's what Jesus is teaching us, to allow the physical to inform and draw you into a deeper communion with God and His world. Um, just 
footnote here that we will have physical bodies in the new heavens and new earth. We will not be floating spirits. That we, as the Apostle Paul says, we will have a physical body like the Lord Jesus, a glorified body that is free from sin. So we will have physical bodies. That's a glorious thing. And we will be walking on the ground. Right? It's a beautiful thing. We can't get into that. So that's just a side note that the physical is not bad. The physical and the spiritual, we will, in eternity, we will have physical bodies, and that's how we will commune with God. We will see Him as He is. We will hear Him. We will, anyway. So that's back to the text. Let's go back to the text. Jesus is trying to open up His disciples' eyes by merely telling them to look out. The problem is not that the disciples couldn't understand. The problem is that their vision was so clouded by their cultural baggage that God had to work a certain way and their vision was clouded by their physical hunger. And so they failed to step into their real calling. That is, they, like us, are called to seek out those on the fringes. Those who are different than us. Those who sound different, who look different, who work in a different field. And so the call for us as Christians is to open our eyes and to look and to see that there is a harvest. And that's our third point, that we are to be spiritual sowers. This is the, the last three verses here, thir- verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This woman, this thirsty woman, was so captured by the depth of Christ's affection for her and knowledge of her that she simply went to town. There's no long apologetic argument here, is there? She simply just says, hey, come come see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? That's all she says. And so many times as Christians, we can get bogged down like, well, what if they ask me about the, you know, the, how the canon came to be? What if they ask me like, like to kind of dissect the Trinity and some of the logical pieces? We get so bogged down with that. And the Lord just wants you to say, you know what? I had a great weekend at my church. Uh, I had this conversation with a friend of mine. It was so encouraging. That's it. Because God can use even that to say, what is your experience with God to draw people into that? And her encounter with Jesus was enough for her to have wells of living water streaming out from her. She just simply went to Jesus. And that's all God is calling you to do this morning is to come to Jesus. Because later on in John chapter 7, Jesus says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So, so, the, so the, the call for us is not get out there and get sowing. No, the call is to go to Jesus. And as you go more and more to Jesus, you will flow out of this place. You will have rivers of living water. It's not going to be something that you have to conjure up. But if you spend enough time gazing at Jesus, you begin to look like Jesus. And you begin to act like Jesus. And that's what his call for us is. You remember... I started our time by uh, talking about um, the uh, Mexican-American War. One of the beautiful stories out of that is this woman called the Maid of Monterey. And this Maid of Monterey was a Mexican woman who could have easily 
tried to go and kill all the Americans. Uh, could have easily tried to, you know, just subversively slit their throats and, and helped the Mexican army. But this maid of Monterey, in which there was a song written about, you can Google it. What did she do? Instead of despising her northern neighbors, she gave water to them. She gave water to both Americans and to Mexicans. She said, I freely will give because I have something that they need. And that, as Christians, is what we are simply called to be and to do, is to love people. To love people who God puts in our path as opposed to, no, I'm going to avoid that person. <laughs> I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to make... No. God says, this is your path and this is your harvest that I've put you in to be involved in. So how are we going to do that? Well, I think, and I'll just end here, to exhort us to be engaged in all of the announcements that we had at the beginning, to be engaged in that. COVID has, has done a number on the church, just as on our culture, where people are just have a lot of uh, fear of missing out, right? FOMO, a little bit of, uh, well, I'm not going to commit to that because I may have something better come along. But I want to exhort you to fight against that tendency that COVID taught us to just kind of check out and to kind of let life happen out here. I want you to step into that and say, I'm going to be there April 15th and I'm going to be conversing with my neighbors. I'm going to be caring for those who are in the church um, at the women's tea and at the men's uh, work day. Be involved, be connected, know that God is in that place, in that space, whether there are five people, whether there are a thousand people, God is there. And the question is, is whether we will participate with him in that work. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a gift to be here. We are thankful for your provision for us. We ask you to help us to open our eyes to see that the harvest is white and ready for harvest, that you have called us to be spiritual sowers, that we too are hungry and thirsty and we can come to you to find sustenance for our soul and to go out and to give water to all without discrimination. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.